0: Hello, welcome to Hampshire Fans Podcast. I'm Ian Pierce, and I'm back with you for another episode. I hope that uh, you all keeping well. At the time of recording, we're still under lockdown, but the uh, horizon suggests that we could be coming to brighter times. With me today is Simon Walter, who is the former cricket writer on the Southern Daily Echo. Good evening, Simon. How are you keeping? Hi, oh, Ian. Yeah, I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Yeah, as I was just mentioning that um, hopefully we're getting nearer the end of this lockdown than the beginning. Yeah. And uh, we can start thinking about uh, cricket if there is any this summer. Absolutely. So the reason um, I wanted to talk to you is that uh, you've spent a large number of years following Hampshire cricket. You've seen more Hampshire cricket than most, I'd say, over the last two decades. Uh, And I thought you'd be somebody that could give our listeners a good insight into behind the scenes at Hampshire cricket, as well as on the field. Can you tell us about how long you've followed Hampshire for professionally?
1: Yeah, uh, first season was 2002. So going back to uh, second season at the Rose Bowl, uh, as it was known then, Uh, so 2002 till about 2012 I followed Hampshire home and away every day's play pretty much championship this day one day in 2020 and then still spent most days play at the the Rose Bowl or as the Aegeus as it then became known from 2012 to about yeah through till about 2016-17 um, and I was still at the Echo until last season, finished earlier this year. But uh, due to uh, cutting of resources, etc., didn't really get to the, the ground as much. So really, yeah, it was those 15 years, 20, 2002 to 2017, particularly that first decade of the Aegean sport.
0: Yeah, interesting times. So before you became a journalist and following Hampshire professionally, w- were you a fan first?
1: Um, I was a Sussex fan, actually. I grew up in, spent my secondary school years in in Sussex, having grown up in London. So uh, gravitated towards supporting Sussex. So yeah, most of my cr- cricket watching as a as a youth was spent either at Hove or Arundel. Certainly, in my late mid to late teens, I spent a few days there. But uh, yeah, I mean, any lad growing up. You uh, knew about Hampshire. Obviously, they were very successful in the late '80s and early '90s with those Lords finals, and I, I still remember watching Mark Nicholas's teams winning, winning those games with with all those those great names. So Hampshire was uh, always had a was always a county with a romanticism about it. So yeah, getting the chance to to cover them especially when Robin Smith was, was still there my first two years um, and then Shane Warne after that it was a it was a dream come true really for a for a young lad who'd who'd watched a lot of cricket on the TV as well and anyone of my generation watched loved Robin Smith probably had a grey nickels bat as a result and um, and then when Shane Warne came on the scene obviously that was a very exciting time for any any cricket fan. So to so to cover Hampshire when he was captain after succeeding Robin Smith was, yeah, yeah, I was very very lucky to be in that position.
0: Yeah, I mean Robin Smith was a great batsman for youngsters to mimic, if you like. He used to walk to the crease, you know, with that full bat twirling, yeah, you know, windmilling your grey nickels or equivalent. Yeah, he was a great player. Certainly one of my favourites growing up. So how did you find yourself getting into journalism? Was that a conscious decision, something you always wanted to do or something Um, you fell into?
1: Yeah, for the book, really. I mean, as a sports fan, I always turned to the back pages of of the newspapers and I was an avid reader of of, uh, particularly football and the cricket columns. Growing up, um, I had my my great-aunt was very uh, much into the genealogy of the family and going back to my ancestors in the late 18th, century what they they founded the the times newspaper so i always had that interest in in newspapers and then did a um, media stroke journalism degree um which was quite theory based and then after that i did the pre-entry certificate through the national council for the training of journalists which is the standard way into provincial journalism so i i did that after uni. Uh, and then my first job was at the M News Agency in Portsmouth, which covered sport in the region, including Hampshire cricket. It was owned and run by Pat Symes, who was the the wisdom correspondent. Oh
0: as,
1: yes. uh, So you've probably seen his name on the the uh,
0: happy, yeah
1: the Hampshire reports. He he uh, wrote a lot of books as well, especially autobiographies that he ghost wrote with. He did one with Malcolm Marshall that you might have come across, Gordon Greenwich, and more recently he did one with Sean Noodle as well. So yeah, I've
0: read, I think he read was, all three of those.
1: Yeah, yeah, great books. And he was steeped in Hampshire cricket. So he, he was a great person to, to learn from. But my time there was spent mainly as a, certainly for my first year as a general news reporter. And then spent two years there. And then cricket writer's job at the Echo came up in uh, late 2001. Okay. So, yeah. So my first season was 2002, covering that that Hampshire team. So yeah, I was very fortunate. There are not many cricket writers' jobs come up on local newspapers. Um, certainly now, and even then, 20 years ago, they were few and far between. So I was very fortunate to um, get that uh, get that job, and was there for 20 years in the end.
0: Wow. Yeah. So you're saying that you you started professionally. Uh, the Aegeus Bowl, or the Rose Bowl as it was called back in 2002. Yeah. I bet the press conditions were a bit different.
1: Yeah. Obviously, there was no, <laughs> no Wi-Fi um, and the, the press box itself was, it was, um, yeah, it was more than adequate. It was, a. Uh, do you remember the meringue-shaped marquees around the, I do. where the uh, Shane Warren stand is now, there was a, a marquee-type room just next to the home players' steps up to the dressing room. So it's quite a, handy place to be sat if you wanted to grab someone for a, a quick interview so yeah we were sat there um i suppose at uh well fine leg or long off that was where we were for the first year or so and then we oh i mean over the years there have been several different press boxes there there was a we went over to the other side the northern end as it was known then Uh, There's a huge, great porter cabin, and then there was. We're at the top of some scaffolding um, when that was taken down at the the same end, and then we've had various rooms elsewhere. The Sean Noodle suite we're in for a number of years, and I think the press stood in there even up to last season. Probably would have been this year. I think there are two rooms in the Sean Noodle, in the Colin Ingleby McKenzie stand, um, Mm. the pavilion, and then we yeah we've been other various places. Shane Warne stand had a we had a room in there at one point, and obviously the media centre now is. what a view that is from, that, from the media centre there. Probably the best breast box, though, so from a covering county cricket perspective. We were only in it for one match. It was, um, I think it was the last game of one season against, I think Durham was the opposition about six years ago. And we were put in the executive suite at the top of the pavilion, so on the, the top decking. And the view from there is obviously incredible. Best view in, in English cricket, I'd say, certainly amongst the principal county grounds. Um yeah, so we were we were in there. The great thing about that that press box was that you could hear everything. You could hear bat on ball and the view was again right behind the bowler's arm. Uh it was just a yeah, it was that, that was a fantastic press box. Which didn't last unfortunately. I think we were a bit too noisy and because a few of them <laughs> remember top of the at the top of the pavilion were um within earshot of them. So yeah, so he didn't last long there. But, but um, yeah, you can't argue with the the, press, the, the media centre in the hotel now. It is, uh, yeah, absolutely
0: fantastic. I mean, there's two problems there. The, on top of the pavilion, though, even in the height of summer, it can be particularly cold with the canopy on top. And secondly, I suppose with the media centre, it often depended on whether any football teams had booked out the hotel. Yeah. I think sent most, back to the it, other end, don't you?
1: Sorry, say it again. You get shunted <laughs> together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think most Premier League teams have been in the in the media centre or in the hotel at, at, at some point um, since, since it's been up. But um, no, the Shaw Noodle suite was pretty good as as well so um you just had to uh, make sure you knew which end of the ground to go to before the start of play otherwise it was a long walk
0: yeah i mean we've often my time in hospital radio we've often had lost journalists uh, from the away side turn up trying to find out where they should be and then it uh, a uh, little bit of a lottery
1: will Brewster, the press office pre- press office is pretty good at um sending an email around isn't he but at the beginning of the, the day so you know you just have to make sure you uh you have a look you know where yeah, you go, I'm
0: feeling to be fair to Will, I think these were generally before his time. So. <laughs> so, in terms of those, so best part of 20 years following Hampshire, what are the biggest stories that you've covered in that time?
1: Um, yeah, good question. I mean, the, when I first started, obviously, the Rose Bowl was a very, um, very new, and uh, the pitch obviously came in for a, as you probably remember, came in for a, quite a lot of stick and some cases unfairly but yeah the nature of any cricket ground when it's first laid down it's gonna it's gonna take a while to bed in and that's exactly what happened it took a few years for it to become the great square it is is now Nigel Gray and his team worked very hard to ensure that but I remember my first season was quite the tough one from that point of view because I don't know if you remember the games against India who were the tourists that summer mm. and and Lancashire, that July, the pitch just suddenly started uh, behaving very <laughs> badly to the point where the Indian players um, didn't, didn't want to bat. And then uh, when Lancashire played the following week, I think it was, Hampshire ended up getting, uh, getting points docked because of the poor quality of it, which was unfortunate. Funny enough, I remember James Anderson, the young James Anderson, tearing through Hampshire in that game. I don't think... I think it was his first five for. I think he's at six for hardly six for twenty odd or something like that. And Chris Tremlett as well took his first five for in that game. So he got two. And James Anderson obviously then was rapid. Chris Tremlett bowling from the height he he did. Um, It was a frightening prospect on that wicket. But yeah, gradually it it settled down. But at at that time also was the in terms of other stories that Robin Smith was coming towards the end of his career. I think I saw him score a couple of centuries that year, but his—he wasn't the player he was. Obviously, at his peak, The star was beginning to fade by two thousand and three. Obviously, that that was his last season, which was—it was difficult because it was—he wanted to to play into his forties, I think, ideally, and he didn't didn't quite do that. And uh, I know Rob Bransgrove, the chairman. It was a very diff- difficult process. Um. So yeah, those were the when I first started. Those were the main two stories, and then Shane Warren was going to come in as captain in two thousand and three, and we know what happened then with the diuretic, and that was a year's ban followed, and uh, he came in two thousand and four, as we all know. So yeah, that that t- that time it, it was yeah there, were, there was lots to write about, and in amongst that signing of Kevin Peterson, and then the success after after that, it was fortunately which made my life my job. Very easy. There was a lot of positivity to write about, a lot of success, um, particularly in the one-day game, the white ball, in the white ball formats, trophy after trophy. But the two thousand and once the, the two thousand and five CNG trophy was won, it was um, it was success year on year, pretty much, um, with all those subsequent Lords finals and finals days and a uh, pretty damn good championship team as well. They're quite close in 05 and uh, established first division team for much of that time, as well as, as, well as having good runs in both the white ball formats. Obviously, the 2020 took a while, didn't it? Not It's about 2010 that kicked in, but the, the C&G in tw- 2005 got to the final again in 07, won it in 09. 2010, the, the, the trophies stand out, obviously, mm. the 10, the, the Finals there at the Rose Bowl, the double of 2012, and promotion after back into the first division in 2014, where they've been ever since. It was good to see them. I was back at Lords a couple of years ago to see them win against Kent. I think this year uh, it's a, such a shame that, with what's happened because this, I think this year they they have an excellent chance of doing very well in the in the championship.
0: Yeah, it's a massive shame. I mean, our, our previous episode uh, we looked back at the the 2010s, if you like, and there was so much to cover. Um, it's never dull. There's always something going on. And, yeah, with, with that run through the 2000s, you just think, wow, yeah, a lot did happen. New ground, uh, Lord's appearances, Kevin Peterson, Shane Warne. It's never dull following Hampshire. So I imagine you, you've never been short of something to write about. Any amusing stories that sort of stick in your memory from off the field?
1: Off the field? Um yeah, I mean, uh, I always got some, from a personal point of view, I, when I left uh, the Echo early this year, I was reminded of the times that I, by fellow local cricket writers, of the times that I was stuck at the ground until it was when it was dark and then found the ground ground locked. So I quite often had to scale the gates of a few, certainly away, way grounds I remember at Taunton finding the Vivian Richards Gates locked and I had to climb over those and at Grace Road I think as well so that food was always a sticking point as well we can't remember which outground it was it might have been Tunbridge Wells before a 2020 game maybe there was a lovely spread of food laid out before before the game and uh, I think it was I'm sure you won't mind me saying I think it might Vimpany dived in and had a helped himself and I've <laughs> And then we had the uh, chief exec, the tank chief exec, came storming over to say it, it was the players, it was the players' lunch, and we were we were tucking in. They um, <laughs> were out on the field, so yeah. I mean, doing the job of I did was yeah, I wasn't just about the cricket. It was great camaraderie in the in the press box and great characters and friends that I made over the years. So. Yeah, looking back, a lot of a lot of good times.
0: Mm. So you, you mentioned Pat Symes and uh, Mike Vimpany as well. Um can you tell us about some of the more interesting characters in the press box that you come across?
1: Yeah, well that, going back to the noughties especially, that was a time when the press box was uh certainly um busier than it than it is now. Although well, now you all the radio commentators and Quite often clubs send their own press officers home and away now, so it's back up, the numbers are back up to what they were, I think, in some cases. But back then you would have someone from The Telegraph, you'd have someone from The Times, quite often CMJ himself, would go to the county matches, which just showed his love for, for cricket, um, as well as covering England home and away. He'd make sure he, he got around the shires as well. Um, and He was great to talk to. Dickie Rutniger from The Telegraph, David Llewellyn from The Independent, Ivo Tennant from The Times obviously a, a character. You probably, I don't know if you've seen his dog.
0: I have, yes. Yeah, I spoke to Ivo a few times. Like, yeah, he's. Uh,
1: Hector would quite often good value an uh, appearance. And uh, Jeff Dean was another who'd bring his dog into the press box and uh, have him tied up to a table leg until I think dogs were banned from press boxes, supposedly, at, at one point. And we had the. Do you remember the hashtag um, dogs in a press box? I think that was <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that was introduced about six, ten years ago or so. So yeah, Ivo with it, with with Hector and Jeffrey Dean with Bumper. But in terms of character, David Green he is probably incomparable. Do you remember David Green who worked? For, he was a freelancer for the who worked mainly for the Telegraph.
0: May have been staff. have come across him. He
1: covered. Um, he covered county cricket for the for the Telegraph. He was a, a player himself, for Lancashire and Gloucestershire, um, and he always had he had this habit of belching boycott. Whenever he belched, he would say boycott, and uh, <laughs> is, I never I, I never found out why. Which was uh, yeah, a bit different. Um, and he was a. A big drinker as well. I remember going to Taunton and he offered me a pint. Of, i just arrived at Taunton at about 11 o'clock, ready for the start of play. And he offered me a pint of lager. And I said, oh, no thanks. I'll have one at lunch. And uh, he accused me of being a Puritan.
0: Not 11,
1: <laughs> having a beer at 11 o'clock at start of play. But, uh, yeah, he was a great raconteur as well. And had some great stories about his playing days. And, yeah, and a great wit. So it's a shame that the those papers, the, the Telegraph especially, don't have that cohort of, of county cricket writers that, anymore. But yeah, those, I was lucky to, to share a press box with many of them in, in those
0: days. Who were the people in, in amongst that lot that sort of helped you most doing the job?
1: Um, as I say, probably Pat, Pat Symes, just because he... Yeah, I mean, when I started at his agency, I was a, a rookie, um, but very much a yeah, junior reporter, wet behind the ears. So, yeah, he was a big help and just his knowledge of Hampshire history as well. And on that note, probably Dave Allen was as big a help as, as anyone. Yeah. He, he's still the Hampshire archivist uh, um, now. He does a great job commentating with JMO um, on Radio Solent. And he, his knowledge was um, a great help. Certainly, Cricket Archive now, as you probably know, has is a, is a wealth of information. But before that came in and even after, Dave Allen's knowledge of Hampshire cricket was just, it was a great um, oracle to, to go to if you uh, wanted to know a stat or if so-and-so had broken a record. So I've just got a rap running across my back garden. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, yeah, Dave
0: Allen for me certainly helped me a lot and I wouldn't have been sort of doing the podcast or been on hospital radio without without him introducing me to the various people. So yeah, I certainly owe a debt to him.
1: Yeah. And Mike Vimpany as well. He's very knowledgeable on the on the club scene especially, but he would he's a great story getter because of his contacts around the county. So yeah, grateful to him for for a few tip offs and along the way.
0: In your time, who who are the best players to, to interview that were sort of Give you more than you wanted. or give you a bit of a bonus. Sort well, talk and talk.
1: Yeah, they're all very helpful, to be honest. I mean, especially in the, the noughties when there wasn't a press officer to go and get players from the dressing room for you. Will now who we mentioned is was a great conduit. You would give you that access. But um, yeah, in the noughties, it was up to you just to wait patient as patiently as you could after a day's play outside the dressing room. We must have been this, you know we must have been the last. Journalists must have been the, the last people that a cricketer would want to speak to after a long, hard day in the in the field or in the middle. Um, but they're all great at giving me their their time when I when I asked. It was um, I'll always be grateful to all of them for that. Um, it's hard to single anyone out, but I guess. Shane Warne, when he was captain, they say, you should, and Robin Smith, they say you should never meet your heroes. But those two were absolutely brilliant for me as captains. They had that responsibility to talk to the press, and they and uh, I always wondered: two superstars like that, were they really going to, you know, give give me that that time that I, I needed? And they did. Shane Warne was, for four years, he was captain. Would spend so uh, much time signing autographs off, after a day's play but he would still make time to uh to speak to the press and when he did he gave you full value as well he, we all know what a great thinker and innovator he is when it comes to cricket and he uh yeah he gave gave us some fantastic um insight as well as reaction that was really interesting and and robin smith as well all the captains who've who've uh Led Hampshire, who've given me, given me their time, and it's and it's really appreciated. Giles White, as director of cricket, um, we had three columnists as well over the, over the years, who um, were brilliant because week in week out they would deliver uh, in terms of you know providing insight into the dressing room quirky stories, and I'd speak to them on the phone once a week. When I started the job, Alan Malali already did a column. So we kept that up, and that was that was great. So you'd have a page once a week, and then in 2005, Simon Katic was one of Hampshire's overseas players, but um, also a key player in that Australia team, that iconic series, that iconic Ashes series. He meant he was away from Hampshire for a large chunk of the summer, but he would still do a column with us during the Ashes series. So he gave us great insight into that series as well as as well as what was going on at Hampshire. And then Nick Pothas after him was our columnist for, for another few years. And that was, yeah, I mean, you know, probably know Skeg And his knowledge of the game is um, vast as well, So, uh, as well as uh, having a great sense of humour. So, yeah, those three uh, I'm grateful to as well.
0: What were the most memorable four-day games that you covered?
1: Um, yeah, that's a good question because there were certainly during the, the noughties, as I say, when I... Went home and away in, in all forms of the game. There were some great matches that stand out. Top of the list was probably, although for the first three days, there was a huge amount of rain, which led me to consider going home um, on the Friday night. It was up at Trent Bridge in 2005. One of the last games that Warren and I'm pretty sure KP played in the game as, as well, before that, that Summer's Ashes series. So, um, as I say, there'd been a, a lot of rain and I was wondering whether to go home, but I heard a whisper or had a gut feeling that Warney and um, Stephen Fleming might come up with a, a, uh, a target. And sure enough, that's what happened. There was a load of declaration bowling early on. And then they came up with, uh, with a figure that they, they were happy with. I think it was something 270 odd in about 60 odd overs that Knotts had to chase. And the odds were in their, their favour, but with that bag and won by something like ten runs. I think there was a Chris Tremlett hat trick. Um, Fleming scored a, t- a century, but uh, <laughs> Hampshire still squeezed home. Uh, Warney got a couple of late. I think he won it by bowling Rhine's side bottom late on, and he <clears throat> he actually called it in the, the, his autobiography that he did with Mark Nicholas about eighteen months. Ago. That was published. I'd recommend that if you haven't. Read it already. Um, in that book, he said it was one of the best wins of, of his life. After the game, he, it was the only time I've been in. I was invited into the Hampshire dressing room after a after a match. He, uh, he was. <laughs> there was hardly anyone else in the ground, let alone the press box, because everyone assumed it was going to be written off as a draw. But um, Shane Warne, being Shane Warne, wanted a result, and, and he wouldn't. <laughs> He just wanted a game. He didn't. He probably wouldn't have minded it that much if it had gone the other way. But he was euphoric after winning it. And uh, I put the message to the dressing room attendant to ask if I could have a chat with him. And then the message came back: "Yeah, go up the stairs, go in the dressing room." So I sat next to Shane Warne in the Trent Pridge dressing room, overlooking that great venue, um, while he reminisced about uh, one of the great wins of his career. So that was that was a real highlight. I think Nick Pothas Nick Pothas had hurt his finger while keeping wicket. So, John Crawley kept wicket and took several catches and and, stu- and a stumping as well. And he, I remember Warnie comparing him to Rob Marsh afterwards. And as I was saying, he was a, a great, great person to interview, even though he had, uh, even though he was the superstar he was, he always gave time to the to the local press. So that was probably one of the highlights. Yorkshire, at Headingley in two thousand and six, Jim chasing down 400. Jimmy Adams, 1st um, I think it was his first Hampshire century, about 160-odd, not out, led Hampshire, Hampshire home. Uh, that was another memorable win. Durham at Basingstoke in 2008. Sometimes the low-scoring games were always the best with were were the, were the classics. Uh, and that certainly was. Well, I think Hampshire were bowled out for less than 100. And Sean Irvin scored 90-odd, not out. Uh, which was a, as good as a double ton, really, in the conditions. Um, so, yeah, those are, those are some of the, the wins that stand out. Trent Bridge, again, in 2010, McKenzie leading Hampshire home. I remember one of the games that KP, I think it was KP's debut at Sussex in 05, we got a glimpse of what he was going to be like in the Ashes when he was batting. Jason Lurie came in for some serious stick, and he smashed 60 pretty quickly um, and looked absolutely awesome. So it was, having seen that close up, it wasn't a surprise to see him do so well in the ashes. And watching although Warney was probably best known at Hampshire for his for his captaincy rather than his bowling. Obviously we all knew about it when he arrived, but um but he didn't uh, he wasn't as prolific with the ball as maybe we thought he would be. We just assumed he would run through teams, but obviously it didn't wasn't as simple as that. But he did take eleven wickets against Durham in, in one match, which was I'm incredible. I remember Nick asked for his afterwards said it was, you know, it was like seeing Warney as he would be in, in the biggest of games in a in a test match. Another game that stands out is Middlesex at Lords in 06. I think um <laughs> I've never really seen I've never seen anything like it. It Warnie, again, like the game at Knotts, was trying to set up a a good fourth innings to make it interesting for for the players. He always said that's how the players learn. Um, and also for the fans as well. He wanted a, a good chase in the in the fourth innings, but Middlesex, I think Scott Styrus was the captain at the time, were just were batting and batting. He was trying to force a declaration. So the Hampshire players were under orders just to let the ball run over the boundary rope. No one was alert no one fielded the ball. <laughs> so he, Players actually standing outside the the boundary, leaning on advertising hoardings at Lords of all places. Just um, and the, those players that were on the field, letting the ball run through their legs. It was incredible. Um, but Warnie got to, what he wanted in the end, I think. And the I think it was a pretty good chase as well. I think they were, had to chase over three hundred in the end, but they it was a draw. But they weren't they weren't far off. But yeah, just that. Just the sight of all those Hampshire players letting the ball go over the rope was uh, was an incredible sight at, at the home of cricket. And even after Warney left, there were some great matches that I think his influence uh, I think his influence was apparent in in those as well. I mentioned the, the one against Durham at Basingstoke. Another one that stood out, I mean Imran Tahir, Warnie's almost. Successor, I suppose, as the uh, leg-spinning star of the team. His debut at Old Trafford when he took seven wickets and I think twelve in the match. And Chris Benham probably had his best match for Hampshire on that occasion. Took Hampshire. They were so close to chasing down a decent total at Old Trafford on that occasion. So so many um, so many good four-day games over the years. You know, you get there's Yorkshire at uh, at the Rose Bowl when Carberry and Mackenzie shared five hundred odd. That was memorable as well from a a landmark um, record-breaking point of view but it's really those games that went the distance that stand in the memory for me
0: yeah yeah I mean there's so many every season when you think about it you just look back and you think yeah that was something special there even if the game perhaps went to a a predictable draw there's often something a passage of play or a particular innings or piece of bowling that that will always stand out and Stay in the memory for some time
1: Yeah I mean going to the outgrounds Was always a treat That was almost the essence Of county cricket Was uh, was alive When you When you went to the The smaller More in, intimate grounds There was always Such a great atmosphere At, at those matches I mentioned Basingstoke you're, you're from Basingstoke Aren't you?
0: Yeah From near there Yeah I was, was born in Basingstoke And grew up sort of Just along the A30 From there So that was the place Where I was watching Hampshire first Yeah
1: you probably remember the, that match in o eight and I think they stopped playing there in, in twenty ten but twenty ten with they're also they played um lancashire at, at Liverpool at eightworth and I remember going up all the way out there to watch Jimmy Adams back for about ten hours that was uh some uh some eff- effort from him so that that stands out scarborough one of my favorite outgrounds, a long old trek up there but um saw Jimmy Adams score a big time there, and James Vince I think is yeah, it. that
0: was his first time, I believe.
1: Yeah, 180. That's right. At, uh, North Marine North. Road, I, th- I think it was called. Um, so, yeah, the, the outgrounds were, were a treat. They really were. Stratford to watch, uh, watch them play. Warwickshire there was another. In terms of the one-day wins, I think probably the quarter final against Surrey in 2005 when they chased down 359, I think.
0: Record. Shane Watson.
1: Shane Watson, Century. Mm yeah which uh i think that's still a re- that's still a record even now but uh, the way they did that was um quite something and that I think that gave them the b- the belief to go all the way because they beat yorkshire in the semi final didn't they when uh Yorkshire's coach was stuck at the hotel and they all had to run up to the <laughs> potty grange or wherever they were staying so yeah those are the looking back those are the the memories that stand out
0: yeah lots of fond memories and i think uh, people listening to this podcast will remember those and think yeah i was there for those or i followed them through crick info through cfax at the ground or reading your reports will remember those fondly what were the most enjoyable parts of working at the ground or being the cricket writer for the southern echo
1: um i think it was the four day games that uh went all the way the best, if you if you were covering a every day of a, a compelling championship match in good company as well, which invariably there was during the all those years, that that was what made it really enjoyable. You, uh, it, it was such a privilege to be able to watch world class players at s- such close proximity and get and get paid for it and write about it. It was, um yeah, and that <clears throat> that was the highlight of the job for me. Really, I mean. I, Covering those trophy wins was great, but uh, as a cricket lover, and I think most cricket fans are the same, first-class form of the game is the pinnacle. And those matches that ebbed and flowed all the way for up to four days were, were the ones that stand out in my memory, really. As I say, it was great covering the, the 2010 finals day stands out and 2005, the 2005 win and the double of 2012. But looking back, more of my time was was spent covering all day cricket than anything else. A lot of good memories and uh, knowing I'm very fortunate to have, to have watched those matches rather than follow them on. A lot of fans would have followed them on the scorecard, the Cricket Info scorecard, but to be able actually to, to be there was, a, um, yeah, very grateful that I, I had that, that chance.
0: So were you, were you a, a writer in terms of having most of it your report written and your pieces and then would have to completely change them if there was a sudden turnaround or would you just sort of make notes throughout ready to be tapping away uh, once the final ball was bowled? Um,
1: Well, yeah, it depends, depended on the form of the game, really. If it was a first class match, a championship match, you could probably start writing up quite early, early on. But if it was a, 2020 game, for example, with a uh, and invariably that was an evening game, therefore a much tighter deadline. You would um, write it very much uh, as what well, it's called a runner, to use journalistic parlance. It, writing uh, writing it as you go, you would probably do the first innings and then put the, the second innings on on top because that, that was usually the the crux of the story. Yeah, and if <laughs> it was always. Uh, to borrow um, Sir Alex Ferguson's squeaky bum time quote, that that was certainly the case on deadline. If you had a, a 2020 game that was still undecided going into the last over at, I don't know, after 10 o'clock, knowing you probably needed to get quotes as well afterwards. So yeah, but it depended on the form of the game, but uh, the, the 2020 matches especially were very tight
0: deadlines. So the, were, were there any that you know, changed dramatically? So somebody hitting 19 off the last over where we thought the game was done and going one way or a, a late collapse where you thought that the, the chasing side were home and hosed or generally were you well prepared for that sort of scenario?
1: Yeah, well, we never, we never missed the deadline, but there was uh, some close ones. Certainly, I can't remember now. Like I say, the, a lot of the white ball games go in a bit of a a blur. Um, I remember well. Finals day was one, wasn't it? That was a in mm. in 2010. I was grateful that that was on a Saturday. If that was on a, because our paper came out on the, the Monday. We didn't have a Sunday paper. So yeah, 2020 finals day. That that went the distance, and thought that would have been very interesting if there was a paper the next day. But with the other thing with the 2020 games is we had a blog, of course. If it was a really big match like like a cup final, we would have a blog. So almost ball by ball, we would blog the game as as it happened. So you would have a report in a format up on the, the website. Certainly in the last, over the last 10 years, um, we've had the capacity to do that. And that's taken the pressure off a bit because you haven't had to get a report out immediately as well. You can write something a bit more reflective. If you have a blog going up immediately, the result is there for people to see and read about. And then you can, you've got a bit more Time, assuming you haven't got a really tight deadline to write your uh, an analysis piece later on
0: excellent thank you for your time simon yeah it's been a, okay. a little while in the making trying to get together and do, do this chat so thank you very much for giving up a sunny evening in your garden to talk to me i good hope luck. all your listeners enjoy our chat as much as i have recording it and we'll speak to you all soon from me and simon good night thanks here <music>